Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I am the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Peter Bashar, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Martian McLennan. Peter has a wealth of experience as a public servant, a prominent big law firm litigator, and as General Counsel of a global enterprise. So I know there's lots to learn from Peter today. Of particular importance to general counsel who may be in the audience is Peter's experience with the subject of insuring cyber risks. And we'll get into that later in the show, which is it's a very topical and timely subject that Peter's been very involved with. So, Peter, thank you for coming on the show with me today. Randy, with great pleasure. Great. I want to start off, Peter, just so everyone gets grounded. What, what is Marsh Mac? What does it do? Uh, This is a great company, Randy. We are a professional services firm that tries to solve the most complex issues of our time. So how do you respond to a natural catastrophe like an earthquake or a hurricane? How do you provide retirement security for an aging workforce? Or how do you structure stress tests for banks across the Eurozone? Marsha McLennan does all of that. It's half of an insurance broking, uh, the operations, and half of them are consulting. And the company is really made up of 57,000 talented professionals, PhDs and actuaries, uh, consultants and brokers. So it's just an outstanding company. It is, and it sounds like it's a great place to be the general counsel. Uh, A lot of people to keep you on your toes, which is always important. Can you give us an idea, Peter, how you came to Marshmack? What was your background? You had a background in the the public service as an assistant attorney general here in New York, you were a big firm litigator. Lead everyone through your, your bio just for a little while. Absolutely. So I started my career in government service, uh, principally working on the Yugoslavian peace negotiations. So Cyrus Vance was appointed by the UN Secretary General to try to broker peace in Bosnia and Croatia. And Secretary Vance took me as his special assistant uh, to Europe. We were based in Geneva at the Palais des Nations and spent really months trying to travel from Belgrade to Zagreb to Sarajevo and across European capitals trying to fashion a peace agreement in Bosnia. Now, ultimately, we failed. We did not achieve the peace in 1992 and 1993 that we had hoped for, but it was an extraordinary experience. I then came back and served, as you indicated, as an assistant attorney general here in New York for Attorney General Oliver Coppell, and then spent a decade at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, just a fabulous firm where I was the co-head of the securities litigation practice, uh, advising boards and management teams about how to work their way through a regulatory crisis or a significant uh, litigation. 
And then in the fall of 2004, uh, when a former Attorney General Spitzer sued Marsh and McLennan, uh, I was contacted by the incoming CEO, a gentleman named Mike Cherkasky, and he asked to see me urgently for breakfast, Randy, at 7 a.m. the next morning. And I thought I was pitching to take over the representation of Marsh and McLennan as a partner at Gibson Dunn. And instead, about a minute into the conversation, he said, I'd like you to become the general counsel of the company, but I'm offering it to you on two conditions. First, you have to accept within two days, and second, you have to start within seven days. And I take it that the uh, the rest is history. You you both accepted and started within the requisite time frames. Yeah, I did. It was crazy, but also my partners and the entire firm at Gibson Dunn were extraordinarily supportive with really to a person saying that you should take this challenge on and see whether you can help uh, Martian McLennan navigate its way through a pretty dynamic crisis. And then also the clients that I had been working with very closely uh, were extremely supportive and said that they understood that this was an opportunity that you had to reach for and accept. So as an incoming general counsel to a firm in crisis, Peter, tell me, what did you find there? What kind of, what was the morale like? What were the issues that immediately uh, confronted you? You know, with, a, with an attorney general going after you, it tends to, tends to clarify the mind of all the business people quite a bit about legal risks and compliance risks. How did you find the atmosphere and the, and the, uh, and the field for working when you got to Marsh Mac in 2004? That's a great question, Randy. I thought as an advisor to companies from the platform of Gibson Dunn that I understood what it was like to really go through a crisis-type environment. And when you're actually inside the hurricane, it's much worse and harder than outside lawyers appreciate, than certainly I appreciated. So the company was in utter turmoil. There were criminal charges circulating around. Uh, Seventy different regulatory authorities were uh, launching investigations against the company. The stock had fallen in half. The ratings uh, of the company had been downgraded by four notches. And just everybody is upset, quite frankly. Clients are upset. Uh, banks cut off funding for the company. Employees are stunned as to what happened that um, allowed the solvency and viability of a proud company with a 140-year history to suddenly face this type of an existential threat to its existence. And uh, you've now bid at Marsh Mac for over a decade. I know the stock's back. It sounds like the ship has been righted. Is that your view of it? It is as a result of uh, the efforts of literally thousands of people uh, who helped navigate this company uh, through the crisis in the, in the first really year or two coming out of the fall of 2004. And two elements or pearls of wisdom that I certainly took away from the crisis environment uh, as a general counsel or as an advisor is first to be relentlessly positive that it truly is a crisis environment where people are uncertain and dazed. And therefore, you have to be something of an avenging angel, just trying to really bring in a sense of optimism 
that we're going to get through this. You have to say that to groups of employees over and over. We are going to get through this and we are going to emerge on the other side as an even better and an even stronger company. And then you have to be decisive. And this doesn't necessarily come easily to many lawyers because we like more information. We like to make sure that we're making the right decision. And you don't have the luxury of that choice when you're really in a crisis environment. You need to make the decisions as best you can and then move on, quite frankly. And the company has really done that. And over the last five and six years in particular, the financial performance of the company has been extremely strong. And it really is a credit to the resilience of the colleagues and the steadfastness of clients to stick with the company, even as it went through a difficult period. Well, I really appreciate those two, uh, those two points that you made there, Peter. You're absolutely right that uh, there's, no, there's no substitute for leading from the front uh, during a crisis situation and indeed you know, throughout. I'm sure that uh, you've continued that leadership role uh, there. So tell me, what's your legal department look like these days? What's within your bailiwick at Marsh Mac? And give, describe it a little bit for us. The first thing, Randy, that you learn about working at a big company is that individuals accomplish almost nothing. And it is all about the team that if you build and promote a strong team, then you can begin to articulate a set of strategic priorities for the group and then have a credible shot at having that really be conveyed uh, across the organization. And so I had the great privilege here uh, early on, I hired Rich Sullivan, for example, out of the U.S. Attorney's Office. He became the general counsel of our Marsh subsidiary, did an extraordinary job, and is now a federal judge here on the Southern District bench. Uh, Lucy Fado was a partner at Davis Polk and came in as the deputy general counsel and corporate secretary, and from a governance perspective, really did an extraordinary job of overhauling the company's corporate governance initiatives and the like. She's now moved on, I'm thrilled to say, as the general counsel of McGraw-Hill, and many other people within the department really stepped up. You know, when you're at a private firm, you sometimes the, the old conventional wisdom was that people who worked in-house were not as strong as some of the people who worked in the law firms. And I found uh, just the opposite here, that the quality of the team, the ability to really understand the business, have the financial acumen, the communication skills, project management skills, those are things that in-house lawyers in particular, I think those who can exhibit it are really outstanding. So within the role, I had the privilege of managing the legal department as well as the communications group, the government relations group, and the risk management group. And so I've tried to brand that set of responsibilities as really legal and public affairs. So both the lawyers within the department think of themselves as responsible for reputational issues and then business leaders within the organization also think to look to the legal department, not simply for legal matters, but also some of these thornier uh, reputation and communications issues. That's an important point. Do you feel as though uh, it's vital for you to be able to do your job to have all those arrows in your quiver, have those control over both the public and the private and the legal aspects? 
It's not vital, Randy, but boy, it's helpful. And I think Ben Heinemann, the longtime general counsel of GE, and in many ways the architect of the modern corporate GC, he once said that the most important role that a general counsel can play is to serve as a public advocate for the organization, to identify those policy issues that really are important to the broader community, but also important to the underlying business of the organization, and then figure out how you can play effectively at that intersection of the public sector and the private sector. I want to go back for a second to your point about some of the tremendous people you were able to bring on uh, early in your tenure who have since left. You know, there's many folks who believe that if you don't hire someone for life, you've made a mistake. But it sounds like you're more than willing to bring on great talent and then applaud them as they move along. Is that your view of how it should work? It is. I think, again, GE really set this model. It just became an incredible training ground for people who wanted to have broad in-house experience and then grow to become a public company general counsel in their own right. And the number of alumni from GE who have been in public sector uh, general counsel roles is pretty extraordinary. And I think it's terrific for any organization to have a group of people coming in pretty steadily, just as there's a group of people who also leave the organization. I think that's what really uh, creates the most favorable dynamic within a, a law department or perhaps within any organization. I want to go back also, Peter, to something you pointed out, comparing your in-house time with your outside role as a partner at, at a major law firm, and it goes to decisiveness. If you had to give a, a, some advice to outside counsel on the question of decisiveness, what would it be? I think you and I share a, a, a similar view that an outside counsel who's giving you, on the one hand and on the other hand, advice uh, in perpetuity is not really advancing the ball too much. What would you tell them? Decidedly so that this is a job where you're trying to make good faith, practical decisions that are rarely absolutely clear on one end of the spectrum or the other. And therefore, those outside advisors who come in and essentially bring their experience, their expertise to say, okay, this is a sensitive FCPA matter, and I've dealt with a hundred of those so I know within the continuum where this set of facts roughly falls, that's when an outside advisor is really giving you a tough-minded practical advice that, that I come to value greatly. Well, you and I are on the same page on that, Peter. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing how many highly successful outside counsel can't seem to reach a conclusion, and they tend to have my business once. We're now going to take a small break, and we'll return in a minute. This is normally the time in our show where we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorship. If you are interested in participating in our programming or would like more information about rates, please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at LegalTalkNetwork.com or go to their website at www.LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on Advertise.
Welcome back to In-House Counsel on Legal Talk Network. We're here with Peter Bashar, the general counsel of Marsh Mack, who's been telling us about his background. And I want to move along, Peter, to uh, an issue that is of such moment at this time, and that is cybersecurity. And I know that Marsh Mack has a long history uh, of dealing with technological change and trying to ease the introduction of technology. Can you explain how, to our listeners, a consulting firm and an insurance advisory firm can possibly play that role? Sure, Randy, with, with pleasure. I'll tell you an anecdote that goes as far back as Benjamin Franklin. How about that? That'll do. So in 1730, there was an enormous fire in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Franklin was living in Philadelphia at the time, and he decided that he would really make it his business to try to mitigate the risk of fire, uh, which had been a significant threat to cities like London and other cities around the world. So this extraordinarily talented man uh, made three technological innovations. Uh, the first was he created the first all-volunteer fire brigade, something that we all take for granted today, but he was the, the introducer of that. Second, he designed the Franklin stove because people were moving the embers from fires to the kitchen to the bedroom, and in that process, uh, fires would get sparked. And then, of course, he invented the lightning rod to reduce the risk of lightning striking buildings. So as if that wasn't enough, he then took an unusual step and he set up the first insurance company in the colonies. It was called the Philadelphia Contributorship. And what happened was he understood the power of insurance to drive behavioral change. So in order to become a subscriber to the Philadelphia Contributorship, you had to go through a series of best practices so, for example, a lot of fires were caused when embers would come up out of a chimney onto a thatched roof. The fire would start there and nobody had the ability to put it out. So he said, if you want to become a subscriber, you have to build a trap door from your attic out to the roof. And so what he was engaged in was really, he didn't know it, but it was ERM or Enterprise Risk Management design technological innovations that are a critical part of it, but then couple it with something that will actually drive and modify people's behaviors across thousands of individuals. And after all these changes, the city of Philadelphia did not have a significant fire uh, after 1730. So we've tried to embrace the same context on the, as you say, the critical issue of our time, or certainly one of them, cybersecurity, is how can the tools of technological innovation, things that Verizon is so familiar with, sophisticated end-to-end -end encryption, two-factor authentication, detonation software, those types of critical aspects of what good risk management is all about, and then couple those together with cyber insurance. And the reason why that matters is because you're trying to impact the behaviors of large corporates like Verizon and Martian McLennan, but also thousands and thousands of small and medium-sized enterprises. And it is through the vehicle of insurance that we've found that many people modify their behavior 
conduct benchmarking against industry standards like the NIST framework and say, well, to position myself as a better risk to be underwritten on better terms, I better improve some of the protocols, make sure that I have an incident response plan, for example, make sure I'm doing some of the training for individuals around spear phishing and how not to embrace uh, the traps of malware and the like. So we've spent a ton of time talking about that. I've had the privilege of testifying before the Senate. Uh, before various governmental organizations, because just as the private sector is trying to solve this issue, the public sector is grappling with it equally, and neither one of us alone can actually solve the challenge of cybersecurity. It's going to require a collaborative effort. And so, Peter, let's split that up a little bit, because it sounds like your notion of the importance of cyber insurance takes two forms. One is the classic risk spreading aspect of insurance. That is, you have a loss, you look to your insurance company, and your insurance company helps you spread the risk away from you via its balance sheet and what it's taken on. And the second part is the potential for risk reduction. So I want to sort of take those in two flavors because I think they're both important. On the risk spreading front, you know, from your vantage point, I know Marshmack is not itself an insurer, but from your vantage point, are there actually policies out there that will absorb the risk? What kind of policies are being written for folks these days and maybe of interest of firms of all sizes? Sure. So there's two basic types of coverage that you can get on a cyber insurance policy. The first is so-called first-party coverage. So that is damage that you, the insured, might have. So take Verizon. If Verizon has a network disruption where it can't meet its, its customers' needs for a period of time, first-party cyber insurance would protect the organization against it. The second type of coverage is called third-party coverage. So here at Marshall McLennan, we have the data from the clients that we work with. And if we had a bad attack in which that data was damaged, then that would be subject to a third-party coverage or a third-party policy. And so does this include, uh, other than losses, does it include, so it includes litigation losses potentially? It could cover legal fees. Uh, it could certainly cover the costs of notifying customers, the cost of credit monitoring. But then most important, it really can cover lost profits on a business interruption claim. If you simply, your operations are disabled for three days or seven days, then this type of coverage can kick in. So as you say, that's the kind of risk spreading aspect of it, which is very important. The piece that we're actually most focused on is what is the role of cyber insurance to enhance the resilience of all of us against a cyber attack? And there you have the insured in order to present itself as a good risk going through a number of steps that already have advanced the cause by simply an awareness that a company needs to improve aspects of its training or aspects of its incident response. And then once the policy is placed, the insurer suddenly has the incentive to either try to avoid a breach or to mitigate the impact of a breach. So you're starting to have insurers like AIG partnering with firms like IBM 
to provide monitoring services and rapid response services in the event of a breach. So those two forces coming together are the reason why we think cyber insurance can potentially be one important part of a holistic risk mitigation strategy. You know, one of the uh, items that's recently come down, there was a, a Homeland Security Committee in the Senate, I believe, dropped a bill uh, that dealt in part with information sharing. And can you describe the importance of information sharing and what you actually mean, what we mean by information sharing in the cyber insurance context? We think it's critical. If you accept the proposition that the public sector alone, the government sector, cannot solve this issue, they cannot provide adequate protection for all of the private sector. Conversely, the private sector can't solve this issue on its own. It needs to be able to aggregate information, learn from others of the nature of the evolving and dynamic attacks uh, that are literally changing by the day. So the concept behind cyber threat sharing is that the private sector would share cyber threat indicators, so the form of a malware attack or a known malicious IP address with the government in deference to privacy considerations to take out any personally identifiable information before the information is provided to, for example, the Department of Homeland Security. The government would then aggregate that information collectively, and then there would be a reciprocal exchange in which the government would do a stronger job of reaching out to industry and saying, based on the data that we've received from thousands of sources, here is the latest form of attack that we are seeing, or here is a type of antivirus protection that companies should be instituting. And I was very heartened, Randy, that the business community is really looking to engage with the Congress and the administration to try to advance this issue because they believe it's a question that really is in everybody's interest and would enhance our collective resilience. And so there was a letter that was circulated amongst general counsels, uh, 32 prominent companies uh, that came together within a matter of days and was then submitted to uh, the president and the leaders on both houses of Congress saying, we strongly endorse the concept of the sharing of cyber threat indicators. I think it's a great thing. And obviously, it's, it's critically important that there be sufficient information. And as you say, at the same time, folks, private information is protected and they don't have the concern that, that the cybersecurity efforts are a substitute for you know, other forms of information sharing that people are less comfortable with. Let me take one step back, though, Peter, because I think it's of interest to folks in midsize and smaller firms who may not have considered it cyber insurance. Do you view insurance as being, in this area, as being relatively affordable for folks? Randy, in our judgment, it's surprisingly affordable. And one of the reasons is because in a relatively low-growth environment, this is a, a sector of the market that is growing quite rapidly. By some estimates, it's increasing by 50% per year. So you have a substantial number of insurers who are looking to get a part of that growth and enter this market. And as a result, the pricing is actually quite competitive. You know, a rough frame of mind, obviously this depends upon each sector and each type of business, 
but 2% or so, a 2% rate online. So for about $20,000 of premium, you can get a substantial amount, 50 times that in coverage. And I would heartily recommend to folks that they consider this. I think that one of the best ways for a chief information security officer or a CIO or whoever is responsible in your company for uh, taking measures to protect the company's information from cyber attack to gain information about inexpensive ways to actually improve your protection against threat is to engage with a reputable insurance company or someone like Marsh Mac to discuss uh, what can be done? Uh, Verizon, uh, in fact, has published for many years a, a data breach ch- investigations report. And one of the most surprising results of that report, which compiles all known breaches for a year uh, across the world in conjunction with uh, many uh, third parties and public institutions, um, is that a very, very high percentage of cyber attacks fall into the so-called simple category, which means they can be prevented with simple cyber hygiene methods. And getting a handle on those simple and inexpensive methods to protect your company's information and getting the advantage of the risk-spreading aspects of insurance, I think is something that people prudently need to take a look at uh, as a as the caretaker of a uh, of a company's reputation and a shareholder's value, so Peter, I hope you I hope you don't mind that small advertisement, but uh, yeah, absolutely is, not, Randy. And your point important. about you know small and medium enterprises is a critical one. What really has been demonstrated through some of the significant cyber attacks of the past year or two is that there's a large network of vendors that surround large institutions. And the resilience of the large institution in many ways will be dependent upon the strength of the vendor network. So if password credentials are stolen from a air, air conditioning vendor or a takeout delivery service, two specific examples that have happened in the past year, then that can compromise the integrity of the larger institutions. So just the way the public and the private sector has to work together, large companies have to be partnering with small and medium-sized enterprises to enhance the overall resilience uh, of the society. Peter, thank you very much for spending time with me today. Ladies and gentlemen, this was Peter Bashar, the general counsel and executive vice president of Marsh Mac. Uh, It's been a hugely informative half hour, and I very much appreciate it. And Randy, it's so much fun listening to you make the conversion to a radio talk show host. (laughs) Yes, I think everyone needs to be uh, prepared for the future uh, and very, very afraid. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com or you can follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.